Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. This episode's part of a series we're bringing you throughout the rest of 2021 that's focused on the current and future state of the economy. One area that keeps our in-house counsel awake at night is the prospect of criminal proceedings. While in-house counsel can make a lot of mistakes and can lose their company money, criminal violations are something that can actually land company officials in jail. Uh, To try to give a preview of what's happening in this area that is constantly emerging, I've asked two of my partners to join us, Joe Whitley and Luke Cass, and we're going to be providing an overview of what's happening now in the area of white-collar crime enforcement. Joe, I thought we'd talk a little bit about your background. I'm really excited. Uh, you're a new addition to Womble Bond Dickinson. I know you worked uh, in the Department of Justice and served as U.S. Attorney for the Atlanta region during President Reagan and then the first President Bush's administration. You were then first general counsel for the brand new Department of Homeland Security, and we'll probably uh, want to talk a little more about that experience. But um, tell us a little bit about your career. I think folks would like to hear even more about your your background uh, that brought you up to today. Thank you, Mark. I I really got uh, into prosecution when I was an assistant district attorney in my hometown of Columbus, Georgia, and that led to other things and visibility for President Reagan when he appointed me to be the first U.S. attorney and the Reagan administration in the middle district of Georgia. After that, I moved to Washington and worked in the criminal division. That was a great learning experience because there's a variation between the field uh, U.S. attorney's offices and the headquarters office of the criminal division in Washington, which sets the policy for criminal prosecutions. And then I moved up to the number three position in, in the Department of Justice. And after that, I returned to Atlanta to be U.S. attorney in Atlanta. So I, I had a really lucky experience being in all those different positions. And what it's done is given me an appreciation of uh, the opportunity to join a great law firm like Womble with all the strengths it has. And in particular, I'm really proud to be here with Luke Cass today, who's an accomplished uh, former assistant U.S. attorney, but also a member of the team here at Womble. But when I was in those different offices, I worked with colleagues like Luke, who are extremely talented, who prosecuted all of those cases. I worked on those cases and supervised those cases, but the talent we had in those offices was uh, superior. And uh, I think we're, we want to build that here at Womble Bond. That's very important for us. Thanks, Joe. Luke, why don't you do, give us a brief, uh, brief overview of your background as well? Sure, Mark. I was with DOJ for 11 years, first as an assistant U.S. attorney in in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and later as a senior trial attorney with the uh, Department of Justice's Public Integrity Section. Uh, so a good mix of, of financial fraud and, and corruption matters uh, throughout. And I just want to say it's a real honor to have Joe with us with his record of, uh, of public service and, and background. Uh, very excited to have him here at Womble. Yeah, no, I share that excitement. It's, it's great, and you guys are a terrific team. Um, I want to talk about white-collar enforcement. We're going to talk about some of the specific areas where there have been developments. But I wonder, Joe, given your long experience, if you could kind of point to how things have changed and evolved uh, over your 40 years um, in terms of what what you've seen in the white-collar enforcement area in terms of longer-term trends. 
Mark, really, uh, without a doubt, what's changed in the rest of society in those uh, 30, 40 years has been the advent of uh, computers, the utilization of computers to transmit information, transmit financial information, uh, the gathering of all, all of the data no longer on paper uh, for U.S. attorney's offices. For example, years ago when a subpoena was issued, uh, it was a paper exercise concerning maybe hundreds of bankers' boxes being produced uh, pursuant to a grand jury subpoena. Today, uh, a real change in those uh, 30-so years has been the production of information electronically. So when we generate information, it's uh, via a lot of protocols, and we're using e-data specialists to help us generate information. The, the worst-case scenario we could have back then and today it's when we get a request for information from the government and we don't produce everything we've been required to produce. The same thing applies, I guess, in terms of the actual agents themselves. So much of what can happen today by way of an interview, uh, the way of any interaction with a witness can happen electronically like this today. We can be anywhere in the world virtually. So the travel component of law practice and the travel component of investigating these cases has changed dramatically. Those are those are a couple of areas that I can point to that really do resonate with me. Yeah, absolutely. I think your point about the electronic information certainly rings true for me. I'm a member of our Bulldogs team, and I always think of Bulldogs in connection with large litigation cases and document requests, but uh, I was surprised to learn that a substantial chunk of the Bulldogs team's time is actually doing just what you referenced with uh, government investigations and handling you know, large data sets to try to review it in response to some kind of government subpoena or, or other investigation. So that is a big, a big change. Luke, I wanted to ask about something. I saw a news report earlier this month indicating that the Department of Justice is investigating suspected manipulation of pricing benchmarks, specifically in the energy industry. What, what is going on there and what, what implications are there there for, for white collar? So that comes from a, a Reuters report, uh, Mark. So there's, there's scant information on it now, but uh, what we've been able to discern is that they're investigating energy pricing benchmarks that are collected and published by Platts. And uh, according to the report, uh, federal investigators are focused on alleged wrongdoing by traders in submitting deal prices to be used in calculating oil and energy uh, benchmarks. So they allegedly are supplying fraudulent information, which then influences the, the market prices for, for commodities and, and other industry uh, pricing. Uh, if the allegations are true and it's as widespread as the Reuters uh, report seems to indicate, it could be a, a massive, massive case, uh, an investigation uh, similar to the LIBOR, the, the London Inner Office uh, bank rate case that, that went on for a number of years. So uh, we'll see how it develops, but um, there's, there's quite a bit of smoke already uh, surrounding that. Yeah. Well, and I think your mentioning LIBOR reminds me of how big some of these cases, you know, have been. I mean, that's impacted every financial institution in the country as a result of LIBOR going away. So, you know, if we see major shifts, there's already a lot of focus on rising energy prices and energy shortages in various parts of the world. That could be that could have ripple effects for every one of our listeners. So that, that is interesting. I guess that's one example of what has been a focus area of fraud. And I'm, I'm interested in what kinds of fraud or what's motivating some of these, uh, these crackdowns in the, in the fraud area. The last administration was, was focused on immigration and, and violent crimes primarily. Uh, I think you've seen a renewed focus on, 
white collar enforcement when it comes to the Biden administration. In recent remarks, an attorney from the Deputy Attorney General's office uh, stated that the department's going to, quote, surge resources and, quote, redouble efforts for corporate enforcement. So it's a lot of tough talk, uh, and they are they're getting ready for task force and cases and investigations in a number of different areas. Just the first one that comes to mind is is the FCPA, which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, DOJ has an anti-corruption task force focused on the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Uh, they've stood up a Latin America task force in the FBI's Miami office, and a number of agents have actually been detailed to the um, main justice's fraud section for those particular cases. And if you look at the stats, Mark, for 2020, uh, there were four FCPA actions. Uh, three out of the four of those were in South America, two in Brazil and one in Peru. So I think uh, Latin America, uh, particularly South America, uh, will continue to be a, a high priority FCPA uh, enforcement area. Gotcha. Joe? I agree with Luke's comments. There's a lot more to talk about, Luke, obviously, that that uh, we talked about in getting ready for this presentation. So today's presentation will be naturally a little bit condensed. But what I'm what I think we'll see a return to is more international cooperation, which really was a bellwether of some of the earlier administrations. I know you were part of I think you were part of the uh, the Biden administration for part of that. And then maybe even before that, maybe Bush 43. But each of those presidents, uh, with their different attorneys general, sort of set the tone for financial enforcement or fraudulent enforcement in the United States. And uh, Jeff Sessions, who was attorney general under President Trump, focused a lot, as, as Luke was saying, on immigration enforcement and also uh, enforcement, a street crime type, type enforcement. It was a little bit frustrating for those of us who appreciate that that's really a more of a state and local enforcement responsibility, some of this, some of those crimes. And so I think what we're seeing is a return to what I experienced when I was in the Reagan administration and the Bush 41 administration. Uh, we were really focused on the boardroom. What was going on in the boardroom? What was being discussed? And uh, what Luke was talking about earlier is the notion of price fixing, especially in the area of commodities, commodities like uh, Poultry, for example, there's been a great enforcement effort in that area, in addition to energy, what Luke was talking about earlier. Also, I worked on uh, market allocation cases in the antitrust area uh, when I was defending cases earlier in my career. So I think there's a lot that we'll see resonating. And I believe the business community, Luke, actually wants to see this happen. I think it's really an unfair advantage to have your competitor engaging in corrupt activity while you're trying to do things the right way. And part of what Luke has been doing and other people at Womble are doing is trying to get the message out to businesses about how to do the right thing. How can you do the right thing? What is the core right thing you can do in terms of training, not have employees who step over the line and cause the company substantial uh, bad consequences? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And it does... I mean, I know people get worried when they hear about new enforcement areas, but obviously part of that is what should an in-house counsel do to address it? And, you know, I think you mentioned one, but I'd, let's get some other tips for, you know, what, what folks should be thinking about proactively as they see these new areas. Luke, you want to start and then, then have Joe take on? Sure, Mark. You know, in, in June of 2020, the, the department released uh, a memo on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which is intended to, you know, guide companies to 
to determine what uh, should be expected in their compliance program. And then ask uh, three fundamental questions. Is it well-designed? Is the corporate compliance program well-designed? Is it being applied earnestly and in good faith? And does it actually work in practice? And there's a number of different subheadings for that, but that's a good kind of primer for different compliance companies. Um, and you hear a lot about how corporate compliance departments have been downsized since the pandemic and how DOJ is, I think one person from the fraud section said that they, they would not be happy to see that uh, being done. So there's a number of different things that can be done. Joe mentioned training, but just looking at it holistically from a design uh, standpoint is, is also very important. And I th- to track uh, Luke's comments, uh, Mark, I, I believe tone at the top is so critical. Uh, chief executive officers at corporations have a, a really different mission today, and that is to set the right tone, uh, moral tone at the top about how business is done at a corporation. And that filters down to the employees, at, uh, to the people on, they say, the assembly line. You're putting together a car, you want that car to be safe for the motorist, the purchaser to buy that car and know that it's been well made with products manufactured as they should have been manufactured. So I do think the compliance officer position, Luke was talking about a diminishment in expenditures for that. I I think it's important that companies redouble their efforts uh, in compliance and uh, make sure that this is something that's priority one. And different companies are set up in, in different ways, obviously, but the compliance officer should be someone who has a direct line, in my view, hopefully to the chief of the auditor auditor committee uh, on the board, or also a direct line to the to the CEO or to the general counsel. There has to be some value placed in the compliance officer that he or she matters in that corporation. I think that's great. And obviously, if, hopefully, if you've done a lot of that preventative work, you won't get the knock on the door or the or the subpoena in the mail. Um, I, I'm interested, Joe, if one of our listeners ends up getting a subpoena, what what's the process? What should they be thinking about? Who should they be calling? What what should they do if you find out you're the target of an investigation or or even if you're not a target, if you get a subpoena in connection with some ongoing matter? I, that's This is exactly where most lawyers are frustrated. Most defense counsel or, or lawyers that in law firms are, are frustrated because oftentimes the first call is not made to outside counsel or to your general counsel in the corporation, but the first call should be to someone who's on a call list and having a call list in advance of an event like this happening, having a plan in place about how to deal with the execution of a search warrant or the receipt of a subpoena any sort of communication from someone with the government in an enforcement capacity, the default should be getting in touch with your outside counsel. That would be Womble Bond in our case to, to come up with a game plan because so much can happen, Mark, in a matter of just a few minutes to hours in that first stage of the investigation. It's not, there's not any effort being made on the part of our team defending these companies to to prevent the getting of information. Well, we want to make sure the government gets information that's correct and accurate. And sometimes bad information flows out from these situations and the government gets that bad information. And then we might spend many hours trying to correct that impression. So I think that's where we come in, right, Luke? Yeah, right absolutely. Stage? Absolutely. It's, you know, the remote working environment adds a layer of, of complexity to this with, uh, with so many folks out of the office and the use of ephemeral communications, but 
it's often the first instinct of of corporate counsel feel like they're in a tornado uh, a little bit and finding out what you know what's the investigation about uh do we have the responsive documents um let's start holding them collecting them and just being proactive about it but having a plan joe's absolutely right it makes all the difference and, and the person receiving the contact might feel very isolated if you're living in a nice neighborhood community and someone who comes to your door knocks on the door and they say we're from the fbi we'd like to ask a few questions your normal reaction in that situation luke i believe is to say yes i'll be glad to answer your questions that's right without really knowing what those questions will be about but it can be a bit of a, a moment, I, I guess, a, for lack of a better word, kind of a shock moment for the individual. And uh, just having a default to reach out to Luke or other people on our team would be what I would recommend, Mark, right away. That's great advice. And it makes a lot of sense, right? You need to get somebody in con- that's been through it before that can control the process and service that guide, uh, as opposed to trying to just let various people start talking <laughs> or turning stuff over without any structure about what's being said, what's being given. It could, yeah, can get, can get tough quickly. That's key advice. To respond to that, Mark, I, to jump in and respond to that, I, the CEOs of, the, of our clients or the CEOs of all of America are people who logically are the probably the smartest people in the room they are the kind of people that are leaders but uh their experience level and no one has an experience in this this type of endeavor and so having a counsel involved to help advise you is is a perfect way to go at it even if you are the smartest person you graduated number one in your class or top of your class and you are a business genius that does not necessarily translate to handling these government investigations. That makes sense. Great. Well, I know we talked about some of the new pushes from the Biden administration. Luke, anything else we want to alert listeners to? I know we hit on some of the fraud and FCPA stuff. Any Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Sure. Apart from the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I think you'll continue to see financial fraud uh, to be a significant priority. You know, unfortunately, Mark, whenever you flood the system with capital, inevitably fraud follows. So uh, Paycheck Protection Program uh, funds, uh, CARES Act funds, there's some reports that up to 15% of that is fraudulent, which is $78 billion or so. Uh, so I think you're going to see those types of prosecution for years to come. Uh, but another priority, I think, of the administration will be uh, market manipulation offenses. There's been a big push for commodities fraud by Maine Justice and this particular type of offense, which is called spoofing, which is when you have an intent to cancel the contract when you place it, which artificially moves market prices and wild swings in some cases. Uh, There's been a number of those prosecutions um, in the Midwest and elsewhere, and they're using data analytics with the Commodities Futures Trading Commission to target and investigate those uh, and are hiring a lot more for commodities fraud prosecutors as well as CARES Act prosecutors. And uh, I think you'll see, Mark, uh, in addition to those areas, more tax prosecutions uh, simply because that's been touted by President Biden as an area he wants to focus on in terms of investigations of high net worth individuals, but also corporations. And I think we touched on this earlier, but I do believe we'll see more antitrust enforcement that is also a priority for the Biden administration. And then uh, I'm seeing more environmental enforcement. If you're producing a product that has any byproduct of any kind in an area uh, that's 
toxic, for example, or it might pollute the groundwater or air, I, can, I do believe we'll see more enforcement in those those areas and others. But anything else uh, you're thinking of? Well, just to, when you mentioned antitrust, Joe, it got me thinking about the the infrastructure bill coming down the the pike, and and right. I think there's a procurement collusion strike force that has been stood up recently as well by DOJ. And you can see them, you know, investigating government contractors relating to government procurement programs, grants, that type of thing, which I think you'll see, you'll continue to see a lot of, but I agree with with Joe. Um, Just the flooding again, Luke, of money into the system, right? Which creates opportunity for uh, bad actors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll remind our listeners, too, we did a podcast on some of the antitrust trends, including civil antitrust liability with David Hamilton and Sarah Stone. So that's in the podcast feed, or you can find it on our website, WombleBondDickinson.com. I know we're beginning to wrap up. Let me ask each of you for uh, any other advice, final comments uh, that you want uh, to give our listeners. Uh, maybe, Luke, I'd start with you and see what else you want to share or any any practical tips you want to leave with folks. Well, the, 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 the compliance programs, I think, have to be very nimble to cover all these different priority enforcement areas. We talked about FCPA, uh, energy prices, commodities, antitrust. So I think it has to be, you know, broad enough to address what comes up, but specific enough that it's practical and can be implemented on a daily basis, which is is challenging, uh, especially in the in the remote work environment. So I think that's the challenge that that corporate compliance programs are are facing. But um, it's certainly a surmountable challenge. You just have to kind of be smart the way you think about it. Um, to add to what Luke was talking about, we are in an age when uh, ransomware is front and center. And uh, corporations, for example, Colonial Pipeline, they are confronted with decisions about whether or not they should pay ransomware or not. And the payment of ransomware in some situations, they res- if you pay it to certain recipients, uh, their own certain list that Treasury maintains, that might even be a le- an illegal act of it in itself. So cryptocurrencies is an area that Luke and I have talked about as an area of the priority for, for Womble Bond to be more equipped to handle those cases when they come in. But again, that's another area where the if you're the head of a corporation, you're at this decision point between either disclosure to the government or not disclosing to the government that your company's at risk. And particularly when it's infrastructure, like Colonial Pipeline was dealing with, there may be consequences way beyond just the ransomware issue, right, Lou? That's that you'd right. be dealing with. And the Deputy Attorney General, Lisa Monaco, her background is in national security, specifically has a great background in cyber as well. So I think that's where you're seeing a a great push with, as Joe said, using the False Claims Act for government contractors who pay ransomware or or things like the cryptocurrency task force that they just announced recently. I think you'll continue to see uh, that out of this administration. And it's just an unknown uh, path ahead because sometimes the actors are foreign governments and sometimes there are rogue actors and actually trying to squelch this phenomenon can't be done through normal prosecution or investigation channels sometimes, but it can be accomplished through a more cooperative uh, approach with government. And I, I believe both Luke and I would be proponents of helping negotiate and navigate things for our corporations and businesses who find themselves in this type of situation. Terrific. 
That's really helpful, guys. I appreciate it. And I think it's, uh, uh, I'm glad our listeners now know who to call and where to go. And I think with your experience, I think it, you know, positions you really well to help those folks out and guide them through the process. So I appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate you both taking the time to join us on today's podcast. It's, uh, been very informative and a little scary, but I think there's hope out there, both, uh, in terms of some compliance training and, and, and a steady hand to guide folks through the process. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. All right. Terrific. Well, that brings us to the end of the show, everybody. You can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast on our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. We'll see you at the next station.